Tonight, let's all make love in London as if it were the year 2001, the years of thrilling God Anno Domini. Be kind also to the poor soul that cries in a crack of the pavement because he has no body, that a new kind of man has come to his bliss. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. And that was Allen Ginsberg in 11th of June 1965 at the Albert Hall at the International Poetry Incarnation. Beatnik poets meet hippies in an event that set the scene for the countercultural revolution of the 60s. And that piece he was reciting, Tonight Let's All Make Love in London, became the title of the film made by the subjects of today's episode, Peter Whitehead, the director of independent art films, documentaries, films with the beat poets, with the countercultural figures of the 60s, films with the Rolling Stones, the Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix all sorts of other people from the era, and political and provocative films shot in America. And to tell us about this rather forgotten filmmaker, we're joined by Marek Patel, who curated the first retrospective of Peter Whitehead. Knew him personally. Marek, involved in all sorts of strange film projects himself, curator, producer, and all sorts of wonderful things. He's going to tell us about Whitehead. Welcome, Marek. Hi, Stephen. Marek... Thank you for joining us. And um, for people who don't know Peter Whitehead, and I think there's a lot of them, I didn't know much about him, tell us who he was and uh, why should we care about him? Peter, in my opinion, was one of the foremost you know, sort of independent documentary uh, filmmakers of the 1960s. I mean, that was his, the, the main period when, when he worked, and certainly worked to his fullest, fullest potential. I regard him uh, a bit like less well-known Soviet 1920s film director, documentary maker of Jigavertov, uh, the man with the movie camera. Was Peter was always the man with the movie camera for me. He was the guy who was sort of everywhere around in the 60s with his camera, with 16mm, with a Bolex or an Eclair, just shooting whatever was going on, uh, whatever, whatever kind of hip scene was happening. And you're telling me earlier that actually, even though, um, of course, he became this you know, the, the, uh, the documenter of the counterculture, one of the first people to start documenting it on film. Um, before that, actually, he'd, he'd been a sort of jobbing uh, filmmaker working for news channels and stuff, right? Well, he was, he was, he was a cameraman, basically. He was basically working for Greek and, uh, Greek and Italian uh, newsreel companies shooting, you know, the London scene, really, or whatever was going around London. Probably uh, they expected sort of various, you know, Big Ben, you know, red buses, changing of the guard you know, to tourist town um, footage. And so he wanted. He was going around London shooting, shooting silent, you know, just use real footage and selling it off there. And if there was anything interesting from, you know, what I gather, uh, shooting off a roll for himself. So he'd, he'd sort of do one for the Greeks and one for himself. Oh, yeah, always, always. Or for any, not necessarily just for the Greeks, anyone, <laughs> right? There was always a roll for himself, you know. And these, the, the, this footage... You know, made its way into into many of his films. I think what's one of the things which is interesting about him, um, despite his extremely sort of good aristocratic looks, is that he, like several other people from that era who became, you know, very cool, he's actually from a working class back, working class background, wasn't he? He'd been through the kind of like posh education system, but he was a Liverpool lad, no? Yeah, a Liverpool lad, but then uh, they, I think during the war, uh, parents moved to London, and he was educated in, in Streatham. And tooting, you know, and then got a scholarship, I think, to study organ, uh, you know, music and stuff. And uh, from there, sort of graduated and went up and eventually found himself in Cambridge, a university studying crystallography and physics, among other things. Doesn't sound like an obvious entree into the world of filmmaking. Uh, no, but uh, it's, uh, you know, I, th I don't know. I think at some point his... his uh, up in Cambridge, or at least pretty soon afterwards, his his kind of view on things was changed. Um, I mean, his early his first film was called Perception of Life. Uh, he went to the Slade School for a start. I mean, he got in at the first the opening of the Slade Film Unit. Actually, I, we got on fine. I I was in the last year's intake of the Slade Film Unit. <laughs> you know, he was in the first, uh, and um, and he made a film called Perception of Life, which was basically. Um, the investigation of how microscopes and the development of lenses 
uh, had led to the interpretation of you know, human existence. And this was a very academic kind of film. And during that period, he bumped into uh, a person who'd become his assistant, Anthony Stern, uh, who was at Cambridge. And, and Anthony's uh, background was uh, basically he'd been, he'd had an art exhibition with Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd and had gone to school with David Gilmore. So he was in with the thick of things. And, uh, and let's say Anthony was a little bit more turned on, you know, and the two of them together sort of started working on that film and then continued onwards. I mean, by and large... They worked. Uh, they worked until 1968, uh, right. 67, when uh, and, uh, and and so, you know, they worked kind of as a duo with, with Peter, sort of basically being the boss, you know, and employing Anthony. So they were Peter's films. But just to fill in that little gap, so he'd been at Cambridge studying crystallography. So yeah. then he decided to go to this later to study film, right? So yeah. that that was what happened there. Uh, you guys got turned on. Who knows? I mean, you know... He changed direction, basically. So oh, yeah. he, was, he, was, he changed he was... direction many times during his life, and each time, you know, with complete dedication. And, uh, you know, he was a filmmaker, and he stopped film, well, and then, basically, he, did a, he, he ran a falcon breeding centre. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. That's actually amazing, isn't it? But so, so it's, it's sort of early, sort of first half of the 60s, he comes to London, he's at the Slade, then he starts, manages to get himself a gig, sort of shooting London, you know, random scene shots and stuff for the kind of foreign foreign TV and uh, starts putting, uh, you know, little reels for himself in it as well, which he then starts to use, does he? Because, I mean, we're going to come up to his first kind of big film, but he's making films already, is he, with, uh, with Anthony? Uh, I mean, The Perception of Life was the first one. I mean, uh, that that was it. And in 65, he, um, he filmed uh, Poetry Incarnation at the Albert Hall, which was like the first kind of gathering of the clans of the, of the, U, of the UK, London, and to a certain extent, transatlantic counterculture over here. Right, so this was the evening at Royal Albert Hall, June 1965. You've got Gin, Alan Ginsberg, Gregory Corso, Phil Getty, so the, the, the big beat poets Adrian, are over. Yeah, Adrian Mitchell. Adrian Mitchell, British poet, yeah. right. Uh, and Ma- then Michael, Michael Horowitz. Michael right. And... Uh, Sort of gathering of the great and good. Now, let's, just let's to... we forget Harry Fainlight. Uh, Harry Fainlight. Oh, he, he occupies the majority of Holy Communion uh, out of his head on acid. So you know, the great so, thing. Yeah. The great thing about it was, I mean, you, it's difficult to imagine these days, isn't it? Um, having doing something like well, doing a poetry thing in anything bigger than a very small bookshop. I mean, um, you know, but to actually the thought of I've did a poetry event at a, at the Albert Hall was quite a thing. They gathered all those people together. Which you know must have been a complex thing to do to bring them over from the states and people from you know British poets and all that stuff, bring them all together, and then how did Peter get involved as you know how did he get involved as the filmmaker? For he you? knew the woman who basically I think Barbara Rubin I believe is her name um, I may be mistaken in which case my apologies to Miss Rubin um, that um, who um, was involved in setting this up and she was a filmmaker as well but in the end Peter had access to the cameras from the Slade and you know, basically went ahead and filmed it. I mean, he filmed it with little more than half, half. it was a 20, 20 yeah, 30 minute film, something like that. And uh, he filmed it with little more than 35, 30, you know, 30 minutes of, uh, of film. Uh, there's very few outtakes remain from it. There is an alternative beginning, which I think was discovered recently. Um, but, um, you know, that's it. And he basically shot it almost on a kind of one-to-one shooting ratio, uh, recording sound, very badly. The sound was unusable, but it turned out the BBC had actually recorded it. So he got their sound recording and then yeah, started synchronising everything well, everything a, to that. Let's have a bit, let's have a listen. So this is um, Adrian Mitchell, the poet at Holy Communion, with Tell Me Lies. I was run over by the truth one day. Ever since the accident, I've walked this way. So stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Heard the alarm clock screaming with pain. Couldn't find myself, so I went back to sleep again. So fill my ears with silver. Stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Every time I shut my eyes, all I see is flames. Made a marble phone book, carved all the names, So coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. I smell something burning, hope it's just my brains. They're only dropping peppermints and daisy chains. So stuff my nose with garlic, 
coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. Where were you at the time of the crime? Down by the cenotaph, drinking slime. So chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. You put your bombers in, you put your conscience out, you take the human being and you twist it all about. So scrub my skin with women, chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, fill my ears with silver, Stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. It's strong stuff, isn't it? I mean, it is really powerful stuff. Oh, he was unbelievable. I mean, I saw him many, many times subsequently, Adrian Mitchell, and filmed him as well myself. Um, you know, and he, he did the, he did the tell me lies quite often. And, uh, you know, I mean, we should, you know, but that, that's a great, such a great performance. I mean, he was great. He was great. He wrote, wrote was wonderful stuff for, for Arlo, with Arlo Guthrie, uh, song of Victor Harrow of Chile. Just actually saw um, play the morning after it was written at a, a festival or something. I mean, it's a terrific time. I mean, and um, so so Peter catches all this on film, shooting in this style that you're talking about, which is you know kind of from the hip, really, wasn't it? As oh well. yeah, handheld. Handheld. He, Peter wasn't the tripod kind of man, you know. <laughs> and then he gets in, and then he starts to edit it in this. Um, his own sort of idiosyncratic way, right? But the great thing about it for him, I mean, obviously it was an amazing thing to have documented that event, uh, on, you know, on film, even though the BBC had recorded it. And Because um, actually that, you get the feeling that, that was a sort of pivotal event in the 60s, a cultural pivotal event anyway, wasn't it? Well, in, indeed. Um, basically the film was uh, sort of immediately quite quite popular. I mean, it won, won, some, uh, uh, won a prize at the Mannheim F- uh, Film Festival. And, um, and generally, and basically it came to the attention uh, of um, Andrew Lou Goldham, who was uh, basically not only um, at that point uh, doing uh, basically PR uh, for EMI acts, uh, but also managing the Stones. And uh, Oldham uh, basically got wanted to do a film of the Stones. Um, and um, I, I think basically, yeah, maybe he was thinking in terms of some, you know, I don't know, was help or something like that, but a bit darker. And, uh, and then you got, got Peter and Anthony to come along and uh, film the Stones on t- over two days, two, three days, on a little mini tour of Ireland, you know, uh, uh, Belfast and Dublin, which they did. Um, and uh, and that was that was then cut, uh, basically... The history of it was kind of troubled because nothing really happened with it. I think Old, Oldham, I mean, it's a wonderful film. I mean, absolutely superb. And the Stones in 65, you know, in, in Ireland, which is basically the you know, Dublin, Belfast, which, you know, there is no swinging London in Dublin and Belfast, you know, in 1965. And, and in guy, and in, in waltz this band, you know, this band, you know, like, you know... Uh, you know, who are really sort of like already well, you know, well into their their strength, you know, as performing artists and cultural and a cultural force, and they're just ripping this place to pieces, you know. I mean, well, I was saying to you earlier because I've never been a Rolling Stones fan, right? But watching that, you, you, I was I had a realization. It's like, yeah, they they were possibly are amazing. Oh, I no. mean, the, the sort of energy of it. They were they were cool. I as can't, anything. I can't I can't begin to express. What a momentous event it was every time, you know, basically at that point, every time a sort of stone single came out, you know, because mm. you used to see it, you used to see it on some TV program, you know, some, some old bloke, you know, Brian Matthews, you know, and uh, Thank You Lucky Stars or something, you know, and then occasionally things like Ready, Steady, Go, which had been gay since 63, you know, and went on until 67. And you, that's where you saw everything. You didn't see it in the cinema, you know, it was, it was you know, maybe the odd Pathé newsreel. But, you know, these things you saw, the stones, you saw them live on TV, uh, and you didn't even really see promos, really, you know, unless maybe you caught up with the pops, you know, once <laughs> showing, and that was it, gone, you know. So, you know, and then you read about them in the papers. And, right, uh, so there wasn't really a medium for bands to be on film. It's either very stage stuff, Ready, Steady, Go, and then Drop the Box later and stuff, or... Well, Ready, Steady, Go wasn't really... I mean, it was stage, but it was you couldn't call it stage, <laughs> in, 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 you know, in inverted commas, you know. I mean, uh, anyone who watched it... I mean, this was it. This was an absolute reflection of whatever was going on, right? I mean, there was no... F- 
no uh, there was no fantasy, no falsity in this whatsoever. Yeah, this was this is how it was. But then you got things. Obviously, the Beatles, you know, breaking ground with their their amazing films. You know, a little bit of concert stuff and more and more kind of conceptual stuff. But this is this is an interesting film because it's it is sort of you know docu on the road, isn't it? And it captures them as as a band. I mean, as you said, it was like meant to be a sort of screen test, but also it get it captures a flavour. Of the time, I've got a, um, I've got the uh, the music for, or the, they've got the sound from the trailer, and even from this little thing, you get a sense of it. I've listened to this. Why are you coming to see the show? I just like. Them. I don't know why. It's very yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. I just like them. Yeah. Well, watch everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Maybe it's just an inferiority complex. Maybe I'm going after it. think, well, I have to go back to college then. I mean, that was what I thought, but it hasn't worked out like that. It's all right, but I just wanted to make it like he was um, sitting on the fence and couldn't make up his mind to one girl and the other, and he couldn't stand sitting on the fence because it was getting very painful. <laughs> That's going to be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is it's just this permanency of the whole thing is rather frightening. On stage, I suppose there was a sexual thing between the audience and the group. I'm not a musician, I just play in a band, you know. Isn't it? I mean, I love that. I'm, I'm not a musician. I'm just in a band. Predated, you know, the great American documentary, but I'm sure the Maisels brothers were already doing stuff. I, mean, I know the Maisels shot the Beatles in the States, but that nothing happened with that film either, you know. So these films are being made, and then nothing happened, mainly because I think the image and the musical progress and everything of these bands was shifting so fast. Yeah, six months was an eternity, you know. And so you did a film, and then suddenly, oh, we can't sell this. I mean, that was, that was last month's image. Think about the Beatles, like, you know, from, I think, isn't it from, from Can't Buy Me Love to like, the White Album? I mean, is it four and a half years or yeah. something? Thing, you know, an incredibly short period of time. And within the middle of which was Sergeant Pepper's and Revolver and stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. of course, you know, you're shooting on film, right? You know, so expensive. it's, it's, it's expensive. expensive. It's kind of cumbersome, you know, yeah. and it's like it's. You, and then where do you show it? Right, and you've you got know. You, you know you've got to edit it, so and then you've got to. So he he's done this. This is but this is a you know big piece of work for him. And I think he was he was always he was uh, he was very unhappy at. You know how it didn't get shown and how it was being sat on. Mm. You know, basically it then got tied up. You know, basically within the whole Stones, basically you know Alan Klein thing. You know, uh, and the uh, the new ownership of all the music rights and everything. So and it never and it never came and it never came out until you know basically very late in his life. And he was and you know he wasn't that ecstatic about the versions that came out even then. So the uh, Stones and Klein get into this massive legal wrangle and about, about ownership and, and rights and stuff. Yeah, all the films and all the music, all the music up to a certain point, 70, 71, oh. basically shifts ownership, right? Uh, away, not to the Stones, you know, <laughs> needless to say. So, um, yeah, and, uh, and, Pe- and Peter's work, you know, the, the, fil- the film that he thought was really sort of launch him because he could, you know, was basically just bang stopped. You know, it was completely just uh, sidelined, and nothing could nothing could really happen with it. There's some promos came out. I mean, you know, um, you know, he did promos to uh, for Stones promos for Oldham. Um, Have you seen your mother, baby? Nineteen Nervous Breakdown, Lady Jane, um, and. Uh, and then beautiful, yeah. Then one around the, the the time of the court case, which was "We Love You." So okay, so what is is that's a bit of a disappointment for him, but at the same time, it is his entree into the kind of aristocratic world of London 
swinging rock and roll. You know, he's dealing with the Stones and stuff. So what, is, what happens next for him? Well, he continues working with the Stones for a few years, you know, uh, until, until I think, you know, basically around the time the Rock and Roll Circus where Michael Lindsay Hogg walks in and then does some really fine promos with the Stones when TV was sort of taking these things a bit more. Things What's like the it. Rock and Roll Circus? Uh, oh, it's, the Rock and Roll Circus is a beautiful film uh, produced by, Stan, uh, by Sandy Lieberson, producer of performance, um, subsequently. Uh, and that's a basically a, an event. It was shot in studios in Wembley. It featured the Stones, uh, Brian Jones' last kind of appearance with the band, uh, The Who, uh, Jethro Tull, Taj Mahal, uh, Marianne Faithful. Uh, and a super group, you know, uh, John Lennon and uh, yeah, Keith Richards, Mitch Mitchell, and uh, anyone else? Uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, some and uh, Yoko Ono probably as well, you know. And Eric Clapton, uh, Eric Clapton, he was there as well, you know. So it was just circus clowns and stuff. It's one of those sort of late sixties kind of events that again never got shown. But you know, so these things never got shown, you know, never got finished. At the time, at the same time, these guys they entered into legend. Yeah, right. So the but the filmmakers themselves are kind of in a way part of this community of musicians, artists, other kind of countercultural people swinging around London and doing stuff. And what else was he doing then? Well, he carried on. I mean, he was working with Oldham uh, and certainly for Oldham's immediate record label. Uh, And so basically, he started doing a load of promos, uh, basically for Top of the Pops and stuff. And also, not only just just for immediate records, you know, things like Nico. you know, uh, and uh, Small Faces, P.P. Uh, P. Arnold, uh, and, and other artists, you know, people, people, you know Billy Nichols, um, who currently basically does all the vocal stuff for The Who, has done subsequently. Um, and uh, These are our early pop promo these are, videos, These are they? all shot silent, you know. I mean, there's Jimi Hendrix, who was, shot, uh, who was shot at the, uh, the Savile Theatre, Hey Joe. And again, these are all shot silent and all cut to... The single track, Dubliners, Seven Drunken Nights, and it goes on on like that. Uh, also, some fifteen-minute longer sort of sections. It had uh, for for one for sort of obviously at EMI, who I think uh, Alden was still working with. You know, working for doing independent PR for for Beach Boys, which is a fifteen-minute thing of the Beach Boys uh, minus Brian Wilson sort of tour tour of Britain uh, with uh, narrated by Marianne Faithful, a very sort of sultry and kind of out way very funny actually rather lovely and um another kind of a, kind of a strange sales sales rep kind of presentation called the little bastard immediate which is great you know it's got chris farlow doing out of time in it and uh you know um yeah just bits of clips of various bits of his films and stuff and that was you know even from tonight and stuff so again a kind of swinging london type kind of thing just to to g up these these uh these uh salesmen you know to go and sell immediate records everywhere narrated by alan freeman you know so well, we've got a bit of it here let's have a listen yeah. greetings ladies and gentlemen Alan Freeman here to introduce the film that marks the first anniversary of Immediate. You and me got something, baby, that I know is good. The advent of new labels has surely given the record industry a charge of dynamite, and certainly, Immediate was explosion number one. Immediate's first big success in Great Britain came with the release of a single from the McCoys entitled Hang On Sloopy. And at this very minute, you're listening to the newest McCoy single released 12th of August, Immediate label IM037, entitled You Make Me Feel So Good. Immediate's initial policy astounded everybody when they came through with an American number one. Then followed a period of readjustment to determine a sound, long-term policy which they wish was reflected by the rest of the industry in Great Britain. Terrific stuff, yeah, isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. I mean, what if when you've got a catalogue like that? I mean, you don't really um, need to advertise it much, yeah, do you? It's like a IMOV seven. Buy it now. Yeah. So, so he's become, um, you know, he, he's part of the counterculture. He's he's doing commercial work, but still, you know, for kind of rock and roll and music and stuff. And what's his what's his kind of life like in London? Where's he living and what's he up to? Uh, 
Living in a flat in the middle of Soho in Carlisle Street, just above the Pizza Express. Uh, you can see it if you're wandering through, a sort of little turreted you know, thing at the top of that on the corner. Um, it was sort of um, him and Anthony Stern had this pad up there where they sort of used to forays out, not too far away from home with the camera, you know, and sort of filming the local clubs and stuff. I mean, they're filming uh, the name of the club escapes with a Soho club, a kind of, a, you know, kind of a scar, scar club. Flamingo? Yeah, it could have, could have been that. It's um, it filmed Jimmy James and the Vagabonds playing down there, which is sort of something like, something, you know, the result of that. It's like something out of the Profumo years, you know, really. It's, it's, it's well, it's well, well, well strong, you know. It's great. And um, so a lot of this stuff is that he's doing just because he loves making film. It's like, so he's doing commercial work for Stones and for various other people in immediate records, but actually also he's just out, okay, I love. Shooting film and I love shooting bands and stuff. And he's well, yes, I mean, the, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's footage that sort of um, has, has, has survived. You know, basically, the, uh, things like I think I think the premiere of uh, the Polanski film Repulsion, um, with um, you know sort of appearances by Keith Richard and Anita Pallenberg down there. The opening of the Playboy Club, although these they may be the same event. You know. Um, there's uh, the uh, basically you know private view at Robert Fraser Glack Gallery, you know really really good stuff you know and um, you know unique footage really that nobody else was bothering with you mm. know and, and he was because you know he was he was you know like in in with these people he appreciated he knew what was what was happening and uh, and he filmed it he had the camera. He, well, could aff- he could afford the film, and occasionally he could probably sell it as well. You know? <laughs> also, and he had the style as well. He had something about his style which was kind of appropriate to the times. You know? The style was, yeah, I mean, it's Peter's filming style. I mean, he, his camera work, the way, you know, just he used the zoom lens and, and the angles and stuff was just unbelievable, really. I mean, he just, he just you know, the timing, the timing was just, was that was it. He just had it, you know. And I mean, anyone who sort of shot live or who has shot live, you know, extensively, you know, could just, I mean, you could see see his style. And it really is good. It didn't, I mean, he edited, but it didn't need editing, you know. I mean, he could, you know, he could just carry on shooting, you know, and you wouldn't notice the fact there wasn't a cut anywhere. And, but his, his, his style was very, it was still sort of pretty sort of straightforward documentary. It was it was Stern who brought in, Anthony Stern who brought in the sort of like, the stop motion stuff that Peter was cutting into his films, and basically that, that really sort of brought in this whole kind of psychedelia stuff, stop frame, fast motion, neons, you know, trails of neon light, you know, from basically Soho amusement arcades, you know, and, and Piccadilly Circus, but looking like, you know, like you've just been sort of, you've just been on one, you know. So we're moving towards, you know, what I suppose is probably the best known film, isn't it? I mean, certainly the title of it is, you know, Tonight, Let's Make a Love in London. I mean, Lots of people know that title, even if they haven't seen the film, because the film's not that easy to see. So how did that come about? Well, the title, first of all, the title tonight, Let's All Make Love in London, came uh, from uh, a line in Allen Ginsberg poem, uh, which basically came to almost one of the final lines of uh, Holy Communion. And um, Peter always claimed that the idea for tonight came after reading an article in Time magazine that appeared in, you know, in, uh, in March... Um, or in April uh, 1966, it was Swinging London. In later years, he claimed that basically the whole idea of Swinging London was an, F- F- uh, an FBI plot to undermine, um, you know, uh, Britain and uh, and British youth by basically, you know, bringing in American U.S. control of whatever was going on. But anyway, and he wrote a book about it. His book version of Tonight Let's All Make Love in London. But at the time, it's pretty obvious that you know. Uh, he hadn't really actually um, come to that conclusion yet, and they'd fallen for the uh, FBI, the for, you know the uh, the US plot hook, line, and sinker. Because within a week, there was a sort of a, a handwritten um, s- uh, synopsis for something called a Zowie movie, which basically sort of just meant the complete synopsis, you know, for for what eventually became tonight, more or less, you know, in theme. Except the only thing was that uh, the band that was featured in it wasn't the Pink Floyd, but it was the Who. Right, the Who. so the film but, itself is like, it's a number of different, you know, inverted commas, movements, and you've got these different themes, each has got underscored by music. You've got Pink Floyd's Interstellar Overdrive, and that's 
these kind of arty nightclub scenes. Chris Farlow's doing Rolling Stones tune while this woman's describing London nightlife. Yeah. And as it says in the, in the BFI, the vacuousness of her own existence. Um, and then the, the, the Marquis of Kensington is crooning uh, the changing of the guard to shots of Buckingham Palace. And uh, and uh, and uh, sandwiched between Carnaby Street and sandwiched between clips of Mick Jagger talking about revolution, Andrew Luke Oldham discussing his own future, Julie Christie, Michael Caine, Lee Marvin, Edna O'Brien, each discussing sex, um, and you know the Stones, Royal Albert Hall concert. All this stuff, this kind of massive potpourri of psychedelic stuff, all mixed up together to make this kind of. I suppose it's meant to be a kind of portrait of swing in London, isn't it? But, I mean, how did it come about? Uh, so, on the one hand, there were uh, magazines, you know, the sort of magazines that were coming out. It wasn't just Time magazine. It was like Nova had been out for a year by the time they started doing this. Yeah, wonderful magazine from the 60s, you know. Um, very intellectual pop-art magazine uh, for women, uh, but everyone read it. Um, David King, uh, who basically was... Designing uh, record uh, track, you know, cut, uh, LP sleeves for track records. Who Hendrix, beautiful stuff. He uh, he was editing the he had been editing the Sunday Times magazine, and these were the sort of things that I was paying attention to at the time. You know, Ready Steady Go and stuff. Uh, so. You know, I kind of I don't know my my view of tonight. Let's all make love and none of this heavily influenced by you know kind of the magazines. You know the you know the photographic illustrated you know hip magazines yeah pop art magazines that were coming out into the mainstream and had been coming out for the previous year, and you know obviously I mean you know there was a genre of films kind of mondo films which are basically built of kind of sections sections filmed here there and everywhere crammed together into a movie you know and then put out and you know shocking nightlife expose of you know London whatever or wherever you know and stuff so um tonight seemed to be of that genre mm. but mixed in with the pop art you know sensibility of what the kind of what the british press you know printed media were doing as magazines journals and it was a sort of film journal it's a wonderful piece i mean but also sort of squashing together you know, all those things, the rock and roll, the psychedelic stuff, Floyd, you know, very early shot of, sort of Barrett era Floyd. And then those interviews with, you know, Michael Caine and, you know, uh, uh, Julie Christie, you know, the Lee Marvin, you know, I mean, and uh, Edna O'Brien, what a mix. I mean, you know, to bring all those people together to sort of give this perspective, not only on London, but on sex. And it's this, it's a sort of classic sort of, as you say, a kind of this, 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 this portrait of this time, you know, which partly, of course, exists or existed only in the imagination. And it's interesting it's got those shots of, like, you know, Buckingham Palace as well, because that's sort of 60s London right up, isn't it? Beef eaters, psychedelia, Carnaby Street, you know, all squished together, all round here where we are now, right, you know, in this in this sort of little, little square mile, right? I mean, well, you know, there was a tongue-in-cheek aspect to some of it. I mean, for instance, yes, I mean, he shows a typical sort of British you know, postcard, you know, uh, changing of the guard or something like that. And, you know, be, you know people, uh, guard, guards, guards with their, with their bare skin, you know, big top, it's all furry hats, except, for, you know, it's a hot day. And, and whatever what always used to happen was that it was always inevitably on a hot day, one of these guys used to pass out. Right, and then you know, and so he's just he's carefully waiting on a hot day to see which one would fall over, you know, and just just faint, you know, and eventually they did. So basically, that's what he got that. It's so it's not quite, you know, uh, it wasn't exactly the sort of traditional kind of souvenir stuff, you know. There was a but there was a subversion to it. That's, you know? Yeah, but that's very much like a magazine, isn't it? You always got to have your humorous bit towards the end. Um, so what happened with that film? It certainly got uh, got shown at the Academy, as did Holy Communion at the Academy Cinema at Oxford Street, which was kind of a big independent cinema, and um, and I think it, it went to the states. It, it, it certainly got known, you know, got got known in the states. And on the basis of that, he was invited to uh, uh, basically go along to New York to do a sort of American version, a kind of tonight. Let's all make love in New York. Uh, Before we do that, listen. Yeah. To that, shall we just hear hear him reading? Now, you mentioned, actually, of course, that he wrote this book tonight, didn't he? And this is him at the Compendium Bookshop, which we were mourning earlier. But this is Peter Whitehead himself. Let's listen to his voice. Perhaps I am dreaming, though I am awake. Her face makes me think of music. We have entered the age of the double man. 
one no longer needs a mirror to speak to oneself. That's Goddard in Made in USA. A dream, a dream, I don't want to be alone. I want to know that I am loved. Tonight, let's all make love in London, as if it were 2001, the years of thrilling God. And be kind to the poor soul that cries in a crack of the pavement because it has no body. That, of course, is from Allen Ginsberg's poem, Who Be Kind To?, written three days before the event on June the 11th, which I filmed. He wrote it in his journals. Sounds like a rather uh, urbane, civilised guy. Doesn't sound like Liverpool like that, does he? At all. I suppose by that time he'd be married into, uh, <laughs> into the higher echelon. Yeah, so tonight itself... Um, Again, you know, maybe maybe didn't have the kind of uh, exposure that it deserved at that time. But then again, it, it leads on to the next thing, which you were saying, which is that he gets invited to New York to make a kind of, you know, tonight let's make love in New York. But then what happens? New York was very different. Um, the scene in New York wasn't as sort of parochial as in London. Uh, in, 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 you know, in the States, you had the Vietnam War. Uh, you had uh, people owning guns. Uh, you had, uh, you know, racism. You had, you know, sort of black black power. Uh, you had student sympathies with, uh, with all that. You had assassinations. You know, basically. I mean, it was you know a few years previously, uh, the president had been shot, had been assassinated, and uh, you know, at, uh, at the end of uh, around just after the end of uh, end of filming of the fall, uh, his brother Robert Kennedy. Uh, who, whom uh, Peter had uh, had filmed um, on his campaign trail um, was assassinated too, and which affected Peter greatly. And his original idea um, had been tonight, let's all make love in um, New York type documentary, but that changed uh, to a largely fictional treatment of the whole thing, featuring um, uh, a cameraman who basically plans basically plans and carries out an assassination. But while he was doing, while he was there and shooting stuff, basically, what he always claimed was that, uh, you know, his ideas for, for fiction were becoming reality as fast faster than he could write them down. Almost, he decided, and he couldn't find anyone really. He wanted to, actually apparently he wanted to get Woody Allen in to play the uh, play the filmmaker, but Woody uh, kind of passed on the uh, on the offer. And um, and Peter decided that he would you know, star in the film, and it would he would be the filmmaker. It's 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 quite a film, isn't it? I mean, it's quite interesting what you're saying about the in the time you know the, between him sort of having the idea and or you know getting invited to go to New York to make this kind of you know another swinging documentary. Everything is changing, isn't it? I mean, the the, the sort of darkness is, is seeping into the to the hippie dream, the summer of love, the summer of revolution, and then these things start to happen. On this, as you say, the assassination of Robert Kennedy on the West Coast, you've got the you know the, the Tate murders and stuff with the Manson and the family, and it's a bit like something's going dark, isn't it? So by the time he gets to New York, instead of actually wanting to represent this kind of groovy place, in actual fact, the reality of it is. Much darker, isn't it? And I mean, the 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 guests or the sort of the people who are appearing in it, you know, like Paul Oster, Kennedy himself, uh, Robert Lowell, you know, Rosenberg and stuff, and quite a piece, isn't it? And I mean, and then he decides he's going to be in it himself, and it's not, it's no longer actually. Uh, let's tonight, let, tonight, let's make love in New York. It's something completely. I mean, he, different. he films the destructivists, you know, mm. basically, who, you know, who, um, and this is uh, in a in a very strong in a very strong scene. Uh, which many people object to, which is basically one of those sort of one of those uh, appalling kind of art pieces, you know, where, uh, which involves a chicken, you know, and stuff. And uh, I mean, chickens have never had a really good sort of deal with regard to the uh, rock and roll or the fine arts. But um, and Peter's view on this was that everyone objects to this, yeah, objects to this 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 sequence, you know. No one objects to the idea, you know, to the sequences of you know kids, young kids getting truncheoned by cops, you know. No, yeah, that's normal. But you know, you know, a chicken gets, you know, 
killed, and that's that's kind of you know that's that's shocking. That's terrible. That's and what... it is a film about violence, isn't it? It's a film about sort of violence and revolution because that was actually what was happening. Well, the last third is uh, basically concentrates enti- almost entirely last third of the film on the, um, the students' occupation of uh, Columbia University, you know, and uh, and the anti-racism. Well, here he is in two thousand and one, looking back and talking about it all. I arrived in New York with two films then. Tonight, Let's All Make Love in London and Benefit of the Doubt, which was shown at the New York Film Festival. Two people came up to me afterwards and said, why don't you make a film about New York? You know, let's, we, could, we could call it, um, how about um, Tonight, Let's All Make Love in New York? You know? And I said, well, sounds all right. You know, have you got any money? They gave me some money and they said, you know, go and film New York. I'd made a success of London. Why not make a success of New York, you see? Well, of course, I had a very, very different kind of angle on New York. I'd been through the whole protest movement, the counterculture in England, the Old Marston March, God knows what else. So of course, I dashed around New York filming all the events I possibly could, protest events about the war, protest events about the, you know, the university taking over Harlem, the destructivists, Arthur Miller, the Pentagon March, and all this kind of stuff, you see. So I was sort of making a film about violence and hate and and, you know, deconstruction of culture and God knows what else. It was hardly tonight, it's all my love in New York. Anyway, I shot all this footage and they, they hated it. And they, I, so I said, right, well, what I'll do is I'll write a fictional story and we'll just use the documentary as a kind of background, a bit like Medium Cool. There's a couple of guys here just made a film about Medium Cool, which I hadn't seen at the time. But, you know, one was sort of thinking that if you're going to make a film, you know, the Americans were saying, I think we should have a story. And I said, okay, well, I'll write a story, you know, and it's a story about, um, I've got the perfect story, and I'll go back to England and write it. So I came back to England and wrote this story about an assassination, which was going to be the ultimate act of political protest, where the filmmaker himself sets up his filming at a protest rally and kills somebody. Now, this is 67, so, I mean, these ideas have come about, and it's actually happened, of course. Filmmakers have been shot, and people have... Filmmakers have filmed other people being shot. So I came back um, with this. I raised some money in England to buy the Americans out to write to, to actually shoot some fictional events to make the thing work as a feature film with all this fictional story in it. Okay. So I arrived in New York. Well, I arrived in Washington actually tonight. Let's all make love in London. Opened in Washington. And the same night, Martin Luther King was shot dead, and the city was burning down. So, of course, I rushed out and started to film all this. And my film came off because nobody could get to the cinema. I went over to New York and carried on filming all the riots. And, you know. Then the next thing was Columbia University was occupied. So I went along to the university. I did some filming with Bobby Kennedy and, I did, and all this. And uh, gra- events, just, you know, I, I was inventing them. I was dreaming them up first. And they were happening. I could never keep pace with it. Now, all the time, this sort of fictional story that I'd raised the money on kept sort of, you know, falling apart. I never got around to filming it, really. Anyway, it, I ended up in April 68, inside Columbia University, for 10 days or whatever it was, filming the occupation, the first big university occupation. It was before May 68 and the Sorbonne, it was before Kent University and all that. So there he is, he's made this film, it's not the film it was supposed to be, but he's made an amazing political piece instead, and he's finished it, and then nothing seems to happen, right, again. So what happened was that basically the film was due to open in Paris um, in, um, and uh, in May 68, and, uh, and um, it sort of opened on the day that the event started in Paris and, uh, and, and the Paris riots and um, demonstrations and all the rest. So the cinemas were closed and that was the, that was the end of that. It really, it just didn't, didn't get shown. And um, I'm not sure exactly where it, where, where it was shown. I mean, you know, I, mean I, I screened it, uh, including a live version of it at the NFT uh, in 2000, but... I'd never seen the film before until Peter showed it to me. Um, you know, it, 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 I went to the Slade. I mean, we, was, we were watching three, three films a day for two years, you know, um, before video, 
you know, just kind of quite privileged, really, you know. And, um, and I'd never seen it. Nobody had heard of it. I mean, nobody showed a Peter Whitehead film there. You know? I mean, you can surprise, it's not surprising, really, that he, that he did get kind of, like, depressed with it all because, you know, he'd, 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 always, he'd been teetering on the brink so, for so long, didn't he? Was he? Tra- and he... he was travelling as well. I mean, he was crossing the Atlantic all the time, backwards and forwards. And, you know, basically there's a sort of... This, this, uh, recently, uh, the, fall, the Fall dossier was published, which he edited. And this, these were his diaries and letters, you know, uh, from around the time of making the fall. And this, this, is, this is a major tome, you know. And how, you know, no, you know, how he could film and edit and write all this stuff as well, you know, all at the same time. And he's there writing, I have no, you know, I have no time for anything. Of course you've got no time for anything. You're writing all this stuff. You know, you're editing all that. You're filming all that, you, you know. Um, you're travelling, you know. Yeah, you've got no time. So yeah, just to overwork. So, yeah. so, and when you've also made, you know, four films, plus all the other, I know you made much more than four films, but you made these kind of four personal films in a sense. And, and for various reasons... Um, environmental, political, economic—they've all. None of them have been given the kind of exposure that they deserve. Within four, within four years, plus the promos, plus all the other newsreel stuff, get, it could know, really yeah. get really un- undermining. So, and actually, what's extraordinary um, uh, next is that he, you know, he gives up. He, you know, he says he's going to give up, and, and he does return to filmmaking later. And we haven't got time to go into all that sort of stuff. But it is just when there's an extraordinary sort of like career swerves. Uh, this is a man who's been sort of at the heart of the cancer culture in London. goes to goes to Morocco in the desert and uh, decides that he's going to give it all up. And, and what? Tell us what he did. He uh, dedicated his talents to uh, falcon breeding. I mean, from the egg. I mean, he developed this. Uh, he, he set up uh, with the aid of uh, a sheikh uh, a falcon breeding centre. You know, in, in Saudi Arabia, which uh, persisted and, and flourished uh, until uh, until the Gulf War, when he had to leave in a hurry with his bo- with his birds. You know, um, but um, you know, Peter. Uh, I mean. Well, he was able to artificially inseminate falcons, and he had a special hat which you know basically he, he wore, and the falcons used to sort of sit on this hat and do their stuff, you know, and things. And the weird thing was, that I only realised seeing him on a documentary, he had this sort of strange kind of hairstyle, right, sort of swept back, sort of long at the back, you know, and stuff, and sort of swept at the sides. And you kind of see him, and you kind of think, hang on, that's an Egyptian falcon from the profile. It's so basically. The, the man had grown his hair to look like a falcon because basically, basically what he used to do is when these eggs hatched, he was the first thing that these little chicks saw and they imprinted, you know, basically he impri- you know, his image and he was imprinted on their memory. So basically he was their mother, right? It's unbelievable, you know, it really is, you know. You see the films from the Falcon Centre and him working with the falcons and stuff like that and how they recognised him and all the rest of it. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's as astonishing as the films. Yeah, and I mean, in a strange way, it's sort of, you can see how it must have been much more fulfilling in some ways for him. And, and because actually he really did find his way, didn't he, with the falcons and he kind of changed falcon breeding and, he, and it was like he was completely at home in that. And, it, and of course, you know, it's, as you said, he, he did carry on making films. He wrote novels. He had this kind of prolific output, whatever it was, diaries, novels. You know, we didn't mention the fact that, you know, he, you know, he, he set up, he was involved in the the other cinema, the alternative film distributor and exhibition site. And, you know, he did all sorts of other stuff, the various collectives and things. And then, of course, you know, he's he, he had four kids. Very sadly, his daughter, uh, Robin, died as a result of hanging out with Pete Doherty and co. Um, and he died um, it was just, a, you know, it was fairly recently, wasn't it? And I mean, he kept going to the end and he, and he was, he was, he gave good interview, didn't he? <laughs> he, and, uh, <laughs> he gave many interviews. <laughs> yeah, many interviews. And of course, you know, he's, you put together this retrospective because he's, he's, he, he's rather, he's been rather, sort of forgotten and neglected in many ways, isn't it? Well, uh, the retrospective I put together was back in 2002 or something, you know. I mean, this was almost 20 years ago. At that point, I mean, you know, uh, no, you couldn't. There wasn't, there was hardly any YouTube. You know, uh, you couldn't see the films anywhere. You could buy a copy of Holy Communion on VHS at Compendium Bookshops. Uh, I think Peter had featured a few, about five years earlier, on a sort of extensive kind of overall BBC uh, arena uh, kind of review of uh, 
pop films. And they'd filmed him and interviewed him, you know, sitting in a barn at Pitchley with these piles of rusty film cans, rusting film cans behind him. And, you know, but that was the first sort of time that anyone kind of heard of him, had heard of him for a long time. And certainly these films, as I'm saying, you couldn't see them anywhere. I mean, I could see them because basically, I was, I was, you know, Peter was sort of feeding me these things, you know, and uh, and we were telecineing them and getting them, getting them together. And so we did yeah. first thing. I mean, because uh, when I, f- I first got to, to meet with him, uh, largely an introduction by Michael Horowitz, one of the beat poets of, uh, of Holy Communion. But um, basically, I had known of Peter through a wonderful imprint, the uh, press that he'd done, uh, the uh, Lorimer Press, who were publishing film scripts, and there was a beautiful edition, one of his first ones, of Alphaville, Goddard's Alphaville. Now, I was doing Alphaville as a live, big live thing with electronic music stuff at IMAX, I'd hired IMAX, and I wanted Peter, you know, Peter to write an intro for this thing. And he was delighted because basically Alphaville was one of you know like he was into Alphaville I was into Alphaville he had been at the Slade I was had been at the Slade you know so we actually had sort of a few bits in common he had shot live live band footage all the time I had shot live band footage in sort of Dingwalls and you know Abbey Road and places like that so you know I mean not to the same extent but uh, you know yeah a fair amount so you know we had quite a bit in common we were both cameramen really after after that we did the fall and you know after uh, Alphaville was you know kind of like. It was a big success, very popular, you know, because no one had really ever done anything like this in London. And so, you know, by the time I wanted to do the fall, I could phone up the NFT and the guy there, you know, ring me back 15 minutes later. Go, yeah, yeah, we'll put the fall on live. Great, thank you. Done. When? Oh, in three months' time. Lovely. So we did that. And uh, for that, we, you know, we did the fall, but we couldn't use the music because basically, you know, they wouldn't, uh, NFT wouldn't touch the immediate record stuff or, you know, with no clearances. So we had to get, so we got rid of, it was great, fine for me because I didn't want the music, you know. Um, so we got rid of all the music and had Jimmy Tenor and his band doing it instead. And for some of that, because, it, you know, we were both, uh, well, Peter was more meticulous than I was and he insisted that some of the dialogue that was sort of uh, underscored should be newly recorded. So I went up to Pitesley and we recorded him. And, you know, he was very emotional, you know, very emotional when he was re-recording some of those scenes, you know, to to to, to Vin. So we did all that. And, um, yeah, you know, the uh, the keyboards got trashed. Peter Stratocaster got trashed on stage on the NFT. Because... <laughs> so it's just like the 60s or 70s. Well, that's it. We got to the end. Uh, only scratched the surface of Peter Whitehead's life and films. You can go and check them out. They're at... They're available on DVD and various ones uh, illicitly on Daily Motion and all that sort of stuff. But thank you so much, Marek. Thank you. Much appreciated. And you can check out us at bureauoflostculture.com. The Bureau is dedicated to recollecting, unearthing, digging up half-remembered, half-forgotten stories from the underground, oral testimonies of the counterculture. You'll find many more there. I was Stephen Coates, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this particular episode on the wonder of Peter Whitehead, and to see you, hear you next time for more stories from the counterculture.